Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Several weeks ago, we learned that the Hamilton Bulldogs were going to be moving to Brantford for three years, possibly a little more than that. It was three years plus a few years of an option for the lease on the Civic Center. Well, last night, Tuesday night, Brantford Council took a further step that I don't know that all the rest of us were expecting, but boy, this may change a few things. Uh, Council voted to begin exploring building a new 5,000-seat OHL-sized arena. Hmm. Mayor Kevin Davis joins me right now. Mayor, thank you for the time today. Scott, thank you for inviting me. This, um, I don't know if this has been the plan all along, but I think a number of people kind of when this happened went, hmm, uh, this seems like it's obviously a whole lot more long-term planning than just a three-year stay. Well, I think you're giving giving us more credit than we deserve, but certainly from the from the beginning, the the desire, the intent here was to have an OHL team here permanently, and and the first stage was having an OHL team come here. And uh, in a situation the Bulldogs found themselves in, we agreed to be, to take them in and they were happy to do that. And we were happy to do that for the Hamilton fans as well, to make sure the Bulldogs stayed in the area. But I think what the game changer for us was when council announced the decision to, that the Bulldogs were coming within 24 hours, there were 1000 season ticket commitments coming out of Brantford. And that's now grown to about 2,600. I, I thought there would be a positive response. I think myself and members of council were uh, really impressed and uh, quite happy to see such a, such a positive response. And so this is really a reaction to that. And because, you know, the Bulldogs will be here in the fall. So far, the fans and residents in Bradford have made it clear to us they, they would like an OHL team to be here permanently. And we'll see in the fall if uh, that the hope is in the fall that every game will be sold out and that'll help in the process as well. And then in the fall, we'll have all the information about what having building a new arena here in Brantford, what that would entail. What is the, uh, explain to me what it was at council that you did. Was this to explore the idea of a new arena? Was this to move forward with a new arena? What exactly was the motion yesterday? Yeah, it, it to explore it, to to retain a consultant who will provide us with a report regarding a possible location, cost estimates, how it might be financed, how long it would take to build an arena. Uh, so that if we do decide in the fall that we want to proceed to build a new arena, we'll have the information, the facts that, that we'll need to make a decision. One of the questions always, uh, anytime a city gets involved in something like this is, okay, how would you pay for such a thing? You're, I think, in a bit of a unique situation because your city receives, I'm not sure the exact amount, $6 million roughly every year because of, from the casino that's next door? Yeah, it's about 5 to $6 million. And would that be, in your mind, where a chunk or most or all of the money to build a new arena would come from? Well, that would be a factor. But there are other potential sources of financing and government grants. But First of all, we need to see, you know, one, is it feasible? Where would it be feasible? What the, the, the total cost would be? Then you figure out the financing. But, you know, if, if, if the city wants, if this city wants an OHL size arena, and that's the message we get, and we see it in the fan base uh, support in the fall, you know, we'll do whatever we can to see that an arena is built here so we have an OHL team here permanently. 
Have you, whether that be the Bulldogs or some other team? Yeah. And I was wondering if you have spoken to Michael, I know you've spoken to Michael Landlauer many times, but this latest step, this, this idea of exploring a new arena, is he part of this? Uh, Cause I, I mean, when he was here in town at one time, he had put up the offer for millions of dollars to help build an arena exactly like you're talking about. Has he been involved in this part so far? No, this is, a, this is a decision that council has made on our own. And it's, it's for us to obtain all of the information that one needs to make a good decision about a new arena. One of the so things, one of the so things that's very striking sorry. is that one of the things that's very striking is your council has moved very quickly. We've, you know, here when Michael Ann Lauer has tried to get something done, it's, it's sort of been a, a laborious process. You've moved very quickly. It, that, that seems to be strategic to, to, to catch it. I I'm guessing while the team is there and strike while the iron is hot, essentially. Well, no, I think it's reflective of the type of council we, we have currently and that we had for the last four years, which is a council that, that, that wants to improve our city, that when we see opportunity, we grasp the opportunity. And we're really, I think, sort of a can-do council. If, and especially in a decision like this, where so far it's been unanimous. And, you know, that makes it thus easier to, to move forward. Uh, and I have found that uh, with uh, I'm not saying any particular city or public administration, sometimes it can be difficult to move issues and projects forward. That's just the, the nature of what you're dealing with in terms of the organization. But here in Brantford, we have tried to change the culture here of our city and our city administration. So it's more of a can-do administration rather than a can't-do. I would assume, and again, I mean, I know we're in early days here, but I would assume that any building like this, it's obviously not just for a hockey team. That, that'll give you maybe 40 dates a year, but something like this, you would be looking then to expand Brantford's reach as a concert venue, perhaps, or an arts venue or something else. You would have to find a lot more to bring into this, correct? That's correct. And, and usually I don't refer to it as an arena. I refer to it as an entertainment center because... We do have next to the current Civic Center, uh, the casino, which you mentioned. Uh, we have a number of restaurants are downtown. The, the river is right behind the Civic Center with one of the best uh, river trail systems, biking and walking in Ontario. So there's a lot that we think someone coming to Brantford to visit and attend an OHL team. There, there's much more than just an OHL team. And there can be much more inside the arena during the off season and even during the season, other events. So, yes. That is part of the plan, that it's not just hockey. It's more than hockey. What do you believe, uh, just going to let you go, but what do you believe, because obviously council has been very excited about this. It's been unanimous when you voted to bring the team to Brantford. It's now been a unanimous vote last night to move forward with this exploration of a new arena. What do you and the council believe the Bulldogs or a new arena do for the community? Well, it does a number of things. One, it, it's a reflection of who we are as a city and, and hockey's built into our DNA. And, you know, I look at the minor hockey community and the parents and the players, they're so excited. You should have seen them when they came up for the practice. So it's, we're a hockey town. And, but more importantly than that, it, it also adds to the image of the city. It adds to a feeling of civic pride. And then of course, there's all the spin-off economic benefits in terms of jobs and the impact on uh, tourism and uh, the hospitality industry. So there's a lot of positive things that come out of having an OHL team. And if it leads to a new uh, entertainment center, then, then that means, as I said, much more than just simply hockey occurring in our community. Concerts, 
trade shows, that sort of thing. It is. Uh, we do have a vision. We do have a vision for that part of the, the city is potentially being a, sort of an entertainment and tourism center for the city. Well, with the casino right there already, I mean, it's it's certainly started. And whether this plan bring suggests that arena there or whatever, but certainly, uh, yeah, there 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 seems to be some so, something there to begin building with. Uh, Brantford Mayor Kevin Davis, really appreciate the time today. Yeah. Thank you for doing. Well, can this. I just say one thing to the Hamilton Absolutely. fans? Yeah, you know, you know, here here in Brantford, many of us go to to Hamilton to shop, medical appointments. Some of us work in in Hamilton. I'd be love to. I'd love to see it to be more of a, a two-way flow. We'd love to see the Hamilton Bulldog fans come to Brantford to watch the Bulldogs because, hey, we got one thing in common is that is we love hockey. So please come on down to Brantford when the Bulldogs are playing here. <laughs> there you go. The pitch from the mayor of Brantford. <laughs> really appreciate this today. Thank you for the time. Okay. All right. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are, if you have been looking for any kind of clear, direct answers to what's going on with these allegations and stories, Global News doing amazing work, Sam Cooper and uh, Bob Fife with the Globe Mail doing amazing work on this. If you're looking for any clear answers from the government, especially from the prime minister on what is going on, boy, the last few days have been frustrating. Let me bring in Kate Harrison. She is vice president, vice chair at Summer Strategies. Always love having Kate on. Thanks for doing this today. Happy to be here, Scott. So uh, yesterday, the government basically filibustered to make sure that the that um, the that Trudeau's was a chief of staff cannot testify, Katie Telfer, and then today he is questioned outside by reporters and won't answer any kind of question directly to the point that recorders are, reporters are now badgering him, which just doesn't seem to happen very often. And in the House of Commons during question periods, six times Pierre Polyev asked for a direct answer and got the same non-answer answer. And I got to tell you, if you're someone who is looking for some sort of clarity on this, and I know there are people who are diehard unbendable supporters of the Liberal Party who just don't worry about this as much. But if you're someone who's looking for any kind of clarity, this has been an incredibly frustrating few days. For sure, it it has been. And I don't think that that's going to get any better, uh, even with the appointment of a special rapporteur, even with the referral of some of these issues to the National Security and Intelligence Committee. Um, We're not likely to get really any definitive answers on this issue, Scott, unless a public inquiry is held. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, but the, the primary one being that what this National Security Committee is even permitted to look at and permitted to study is determined by the government of Canada. So uh, the information flow is not truly open. Whatever the government, uh, the Liberal government, wants to disclose, they can. Additionally, uh, items that are covered by cabinet confidence are not able to be part of the purview of this study. So that can apply to a lot of things, a lot of the conversations that happen with the highest level elected officials in this country. So a public inquiry would be able to get to the bottom of this. Uh, the National Security Intelligence Committee cannot. So what the prime minister is doing is really signaling to people that he's taking action, but there's not going to really be a pond of gold at the end of this rainbow. And I think uh, he's really playing with some fire in terms of an issues management strategy, because to your point, he's not being conclusive. It's, he's looking evasive. 
uh, and therefore they're losing credibility on this issue. Anything they try to do from this point is going to seem like a half measure. Well, and some of the reporting by Global News uh, today has been, I don't want to use the word devastating, that that may be too hard. I don't know if that's a fair word, but certainly suggesting that the prime minister did or ought to have been knowing about this because reports and and warnings from CSIS had been given prior to the last two elections that perhaps people in his government were being compromised. And the suggestion now is, if you're coming out saying how serious we're taking all this, well, why didn't you take it seriously beforehand when you could have done something? Why is it only once you're caught? And, you know, to, to that point, clearly uh, security officials or someone that has access to these briefings, and these are top secret level documents, feels so ignored by the government and probably I have to assume that there was at least an attempt to raise some of these concerns to the government um, and that this is not completely manufactured. Um, All of those attempts were ignored and now they feel that they need to blow the whistle. So um, it it really is a a horrible look for, for the Liberals. This also has the potential to backfire, Scott, for the NDP. If the NDP are seen to be uh, you know, tacitly supportive of the Liberals' approach on this, and they haven't really tipped their hand one way or another if they're going to force the issue of a public inquiry. They said they would. They've been a little bit quiet after that announcement earlier in the week uh, about the Security Committee. Um, they also stand to lose in this because it makes it seem as though they're securing their power uh, and holding on to that at whatever cost is more important than the protection of our democratic institutions and more important that they hold power than try to investigate seriously this issue of, of foreign interference. I, I want to go on your point just there for a second about Jagmeet Singh in particular. Jagmeet Singh over the last few days, and it's ha- not just in the last few days, last few months maybe, has looked like that guy on a hockey rink who pokes and pokes and pokes at the tough guy on the other team. And then as soon as the other guy looks like he wants to engage, he hides behind behind other players or the ref. Jugmeet Singh holds all the power in this country right now. All he has to do is say, I'm not supporting you anymore. And Justin Trudeau is done. We have an election. Jugmeet Singh is screaming loudly and saying all this stuff. He single-handedly could fix these things, and yet he won't. Because, as you point out, that would be the end of his power, because who knows what happens the next election. He may not be in the same position. But it's it's so phony at this point. It's so empty, all these threats and all these accusations and all this posturing. It's It's all for nothing. And you can only do this so many times until Canadians see through this, right? We saw it happen on things like Pharmacare uh, and the, the, these empty threats, basically, that, you know, he may opt out of the supply and confidence agreement. Sure, if do something. Isn't taken. And it's a, there's a middle, you know, a mealy mouse step taken that the NDP then claims credit for. I think they've worked themselves uh, into, you know, potentially losing official party status in the next election because they're going to be weak on the issues that matter and where they think they will gain credit on some of the work that has been done, that's going to go to the governing liberals because they're the ones in government. So this supply and confidence agreement, I think ultimately is going to weaken the NDP as a party. Sure, it might keep Jagmeet Singh in, in uh, the leadership role for that much longer so he can figure out his next step. But I don't know where the NDP goes from here because they certainly haven't been drawing enough contrast, again, on the issues that matter to be able to 
really decisively stand up to Canadians and say that they offer an alternative to the Liberal Party. And that contrast, Scott, is what wins election campaigns. Let me just talk process. We've got a couple of minutes left. And I want to talk process more than this specific issue, although it ties into what's going on today. I, I tortured myself for a while today and watched part of question period. I would have been better off taking a hot metal poker and <laughs> ramming it into both my eyeballs and my ear holes. It was the most unsatisfying, annoying, frustrating thing because, and this happens all the time, somebody asks a direct question and the person on the other side, and it can go both ways, this is not just one party, doesn't answer the question even remotely. They say something else that they've pre-prepared. And if the question is asked again, they say the same thing again. What's the point of question period at this point? And I'm being quite serious. What is the point of question period if there is no mechanism to require people to actually answer the question they're being asked? Yeah, well, there, there's a saying in Ottawa that it's not called question period. It's called answer. It's called answer period. And that's where you pro- provide the scripted answer that's given to you uh, from your staff, regardless of what the, uh, the question is that's asked. It, it's a fair point. Any Canadian that's watching question period, this is a performative clown show. Um, and nothing, the, the substance of, of anything is never discussed. You have a slightly better insight into getting answers at a committee level. Um, but even then, there's a lot of politics that are being played. And that's why when we think about this for an inter- interference inquiry, um, a parliamentary committee, even the National Security Committee, is not equipped to address this. And I think it comes down to the fact that active parliamentarians today are the ones accused of perhaps having benefited from support from Beijing. How can we really expect a liberal-dominated committee to truly investigate these matters of their own colleague in good faith? It's just not going to happen. So, again, that's why it brings me back to the importance of a public inquiry. MPs are not equipped to do this. Is it possible? I don't know what the rules are. I, I should know this. I don't. Is it possible? Could they put rules in place that would give the Speaker of the House the power to require someone to answer a question or if you don't, we hold you in contempt or we kick you out or whatever else. Is there something that could be done to fix this or is this irrevocably broken? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Uh, the speaker is there effectively as a, as a referee to make sure things don't break out into, into brawl. Um, but there's not really a imperative to answer the question as posed. You have a little bit more of that again at a committee level, which is perhaps why the Liberals are fighting so ardently Katie Telford appearing at committee. You can be sworn in under oath, um, and it can get very uncomfortable in that scenario where you're not answering the question. Um, in question period, I do think it's a bit of a broken system. I don't think virtual parliament has helped this at all, um, but we need to get back to some some sense of, of why parliamentarians are there. And I think really there's been a a sight lost on that. Instead, you just have, you know, everybody trying to chase a 30 second social media clip as opposed Mm. to providing any substance. And no wonder why Canadians become apathetic. I just came up with an idea while you were talking. Shot callers. Every parliamentarian has to wear a shot collar and the Speaker of the House has the button. And if you don't answer, you get a jolt. 
Every I'm time. Not sure, and I'm not sure any party is going to leave the house without a few shocks. So. <laughs> no, no. This is not just one. This is, for sure. this is everybody. Um, by the way, uh, just for people who haven't got it clear, the government has appointed a rapporteur, not a raconteur, although they could be confused, you know, as one <laughs> or the other. So we'll see if the raconteur becomes, or anyway, you know. Uh, Kate Harris. bands, though, by the way, the raconteurs, excellent bands. So, uh, Kate know. Harris and Summa Strategies, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, fresh off doing the news, I mean, I don't even know if he's had time to sit down yet. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you? Good day, sir. How are you? Always good. Always good. Hey, big better, news better around the ca- big news Sorry, around the station today. Sorry? Big news around the station today. What happened? Well, I saw the tweet today from your buddy Phil. Oh, sorry. I just, I, I mean, I, I knew about that Friday, so I, I wasn't thinking about, um, I, I thought he did. Okay. I guess he did. Maybe he did today. Um, yeah. I mean, you always like to see advancement and, and, um, uh, I, I know what it was like for me, you know, spending almost, you know, a dozen years at Sportsnet and then having an opportunity to be here, um, closer to home, um, was something I relished. And, it's kind of in reverse for Phil, right? And so, if people don't uh, know what we're talking about, Phil Perkins sent out a tweet to the anchor at, CH, at 6 o'clock. After nearly 11 years at CHCH, I'll be starting a new chapter in my broadcast career. And then right after that, tweeted out that uh, couldn't be more excited and humbled to join CP24 as an anchor and reporter. So there yeah. you go. Changes, ch-ch-ch-ch-changes, right. I think, yeah, as David right. Bowie once said. I think it's. I think especially in our industry that, that it's, it's a great thing. And like I said, especially for Phil now, who's got a young family and wife and, you know, to be closer to home um, and get an opportunity uh, to be really close to home because the station is very close to where he lives, that, uh, you know, at a reputable station, that's, uh, that's great news for him. All right. Speaking of changes or non-changes, I saw this story this yesterday and it, there's more that's come out today. And Baba, I got to tell you, I think people in the NHL, if there's any truth to this, people in the NHL have to be drunk. Uh, Kevin Weeks first, I think, came out with this first. John Buchagross as well came out with this, followed by Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman. So reputable, credible sources that the Absolutely. NHL is contemplating or somehow thinking about expanding to Houston. That makes some sense. But, and to Atlanta, where they have failed twice and it was a miserable failure the last time. Who in their right mind looks at Atlanta with the two failures and goes, that's a perfect place for a franchise? Uh, you know, and it's, it was probably before its time in its first uh, incarnation as the Flames. Um, but as the Thrashers, that was a tremendous disappointment. With that said, it was, to me, no different than the situation that we see in Carolina. For many years, Carolina, I mean, their building was half-filled. Uh, but they've proven that when they win, they show up. Um, which, in a, non-hockey tra- in a non-traditional hockey market, that seems to be the situation so Atlanta's a great sports city. I've been there. It's a wonderful city. Um, you know, uh, you know why they wouldn't consider Quebec City first? Well, that's my Atlanta? that's my you thing. Know, that's my thing. Is it, it, it's it is Atlanta does have a as good you know has good sports history there and everything else, just not with hockey. And yes, you're yeah. right that 
sure that Carolina draws when they win, but you don't win every year. And I don't know, right. look at it, look at Arizona. I don't know that you want to pick more markets that require you to be a Stanley Cup contender or it's a complete disaster. There's no middle ground. No. That seems like it's just destined to be a third failure there, and then it will be Quebec City because the team will move when you draw 2,000 people a night. I, I'm, I'm wondering if there's something we don't know. Is there someone with, you know, a reputable person with very deep pockets in Atlanta that uh, are, is considering this? Um, they do have an arena that, that they could play in. That's certainly not antiquated like, you know, some of the others in the league. Uh, I am mystified by this, but there is always something we don't know, right? Um, and I agree with you. I think Houston, it's long time. They have supported the Arrows for so many years. In fact, I believe they have an ECHL franchise uh, over the years as well, too, or if not very near to Houston, that's been very successful. So um, I think that hockey, and I've been there. I remember going to a Stars game, actually, in their first year first couple of years of being in Dallas and boy, they, I mean, for the lack of knowledge they had at that time, boy, they were really excited to have a hockey team. I'll tell you a Houston hockey story. Uh, I won't, I won't linger on this too long, but I was down there covering the Bulldogs when they were in the uh, Calder cup semifinals, I guess. I think it was the semifinals a few years ago, 2011, okay. they were playing against Houston and uh, I'm doing an interview with one of the players outside the Bulldogs dressing room, and all of a sudden, uh, it goes dark around me. There's an eclipse because Yao Ming, the Houston Rockets dressing room, was right next door, and <laughs> Yao Ming walks out. The seven-foot, what was he, seven-foot-eight center for the Houston Rockets? It, it, it You, until you've seen seven-foot-eight, you have no idea that they even make people this big. It was unbelievable. Listening. And for your listeners that, that have never met you, you're a tall fellow yourself. I am a tall guy, and yet when this guy walks by, see, here, here's, my, here's my thing about the NBA. Uh, up until seven feet tall, everybody lies about their height. I've been to NBA arenas, and there's a guy who's listed at six foot eight, and I'm looking at him almost eye to eye. And it's like, you're not six foot eight. You were on your tiptoes. But once you hit seven feet, they don't lie anymore. You're legitimately a giant. And at seven foot eight, his hands, because he shook both of our hands as he walked by, I almost, like my arm almost disappeared. He was, it, it's just amazing how big that guy is. Anyway, total off track. Sorry, that's that's the, that's my Houston memory story of hockey at Houston, which has nothing to do with um, with Houston. All right. The New York Giants, the New York football Giants, sign their entirely mediocre quarterback to a $40 million a year contract. Now, I know that, Bubba, there is endless money in the NFL. There's just money everywhere. It's a, it's, it's a flood of money. But really, $40 million for Daniel Jones, a guy who is at best middle of the pack in the league, unbelievable you know i wasn't surprised by this okay first of all there's a lot of teams that have really really bad quarterbacks right you look at a lot of teams out there like even the vikings right went to the playoffs who got beat by the giants in the in the postseason so this is you need a quarterback right i think what you're seeing with jones is that there was this potential remember they moved up in the draft to get the guy out of duke 
because they believed in his size and his arm strength, which is always a major factor in the National Football League. So they saw the the raw talent. Here's the thing. When they acquired Jones, he wasn't being taught. He wasn't being coached, as they saw. And you bring in Brian Dable, who has... Who took a raw project, you know, like um, our guy out of Buffalo, Josh Allen, Josh Allen, and turned him into this from this raw talent with this incredibly strong arm into a, a Pro Bowler, a guy that's putting his team in the playoffs every year, one of the most feared quarterbacks in the league. He's done that with Daniel Jones. He's made him a much more responsible passer. He only threw five interceptions this year. He's taught him that he can use his, his his legs, you know, very much like a Josh Allen to run and pass. So he showed remarkable improvement. And there's a belief that there's a lot more to go under someone that can teach him. And you can't deny the fact that, you know, the Giants hadn't been to the playoffs in a very long time. And he's seen as one of the reasons that changed the fortunes of that team. So, Maybe they feel like there's something, uh, you know, to, to build over for the next, you know, decade or so under Daniel Jones. Yeah, well, we'll see. I just, I, as I say, like a guy like Josh Allen, who is a league MVP candidate or, mm-hmm. you know, pick your guys. I mean, $40 million, first of all, is staggering. That's, that's you're talking about almost the entire pay of the CFL. For well, every player, okay. getting close. That's a, I don't know if you can do that. That's not fair. <laughs> no, but I'm just, okay, so it's just, my, my point is not to make the comparison with the CFL. It's to point out it's a staggering amount of money, no matter who it is. <laughs> for anybody, even if you're the greatest, if you cure cancer, $40 million is still a lot of money to pay someone. But for a guy who, okay, even if it's potential, man, some you know, the NFL salary structure is wild. That's all it is. Oh. It's just, it's wild. But I mean, you look at the QB, you know, the quarterback contracts that are out there right now. He, he's right in line. Like, I mean, oh yeah, oh yeah. Very, like, I mean, I just, I think that's just the way it is, kind of, right? Like, that's I mean, what I mean. It's like, wild. Look at look at a guy like Kyler Murray that signs a two hundred and thirty million dollar contract, gets hurt, what five games into this season, and won't be playing next year, and right? is, because, and, of, because of injury. And actually, Deshaun Watson comes yeah. out of jail. I know, I know, but the, the, the not jail, but comes out of court and 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 makes similar money as well too, and and he hadn't played in what a year and a half. And the thing with Kyler Murray is this weird thing that uh, they pulled it back, but his team actually had to put a clause in the contract initially saying, "Oh, by the way, can you please prepare for our games?" <laughs> Which is stun. Like, can you imagine any other job where they're going to pay you this much money, knowing or believing that you're not even really giving your full effort. It's just, it's a staggering thing. I mean, look, if I have any more kids down the road, which would be a medical miracle, by the way, but if it ever happens, <laughs> or grandkids, if I have a grandson, uh, I am not allowing him to do anything else but throw a football from the time he can stand. I mean, I don't care if he doesn't have a childhood. You're going to throw a football and run suicide drills until you, I mean, and I'm being facetious, of course, but I mean, it's crazy the money that is out there now. Well, look at this, okay? You got a guy like Lamar Jackson uh, of the Baltimore Ravens, who they, you know, offered the the soft. I call it. I always call it the the, the soft um, um, uh, the, the label that they put on um, franchise tag. Yep, yep. There's the soft franchise tag, and there's the hard 
franchise tag where they paid, we would have had to pay him $45 million for next year, and then he would be a free agent. So this one's $32.5 million, and they can negotiate, and the Ravens still have the right to, to, to match a contract, right? So here's the deal. Like, he's going to make $32.4 million this year. Right over a long term, whoever he signs that long term seven eight year deal with, I mean, it's going to be. I'm not joking. It's going to be fifty million. Remember, we're talking. I mean, we're talking about a guy that's won MVP and put his team in the playoffs. Yeah, no, I, like, I you know, I mean, putting you know, much more accomplished than Daniel Jones is, is at all. Let me just say this, this, this before we. Right? Let me just say this before we move on from the salary, and I know it's not a fair comparison, but the, what the Ticats are paying Bo Levi Mitchell, the one of the highest paid players in the CFL, a guy who's among the best quarterbacks in CFL history, Daniel Jones will make his yearly salary in 10 minutes of the first quarter of the first game he plays this year. And based on, you know, if the other team goes on a long drive, he may get paid more than Bo Levi Mitchell before he sets foot on the field. Well, we, I mean, we have to do the math, though, right? But isn't it not comparative in a kind of a way? I mean, like, you figure the CFL salary cap is, you know, probably just, sli- just slightly over $5 million. And Bo Levi, probably, when it's all said and done with, you know, incentives, etc., base pay, hard money, signing contract, he's probably going to make, what, $650,000? I mean, so there's kind of a comparison there. Yeah, it's just, it's as I say, it's it's not about, I mean, I, it's just wild. It's just wild how much it's money crazy. there is that a guy who is a mediocre quarterback with potential, as you point out, but a mediocre quarterback can make $40 million. He can make, as you say, almost the entire salary of the CFL by himself, and he's not even anywhere close to the best player in the league. Um, wow. we, okay, we got a couple minutes left here. I want to ask you about this because I was talking last week to Don Robertson about a topic on a Monday, and you know what? I've had a week to look at it now, and I must say my, my opinion has changed a bit, and that is with the pitch clock in baseball, that I've been watching a few spring training games, mm-hmm. and now that you've got this pitch clock, I was I was really not excited about it, and there's still parts of it that kind of drive me a little bit nuts. But I got to tell you, I think that this is going to be good for the game, that this is just going to take away the the scratching and the glove altering and the stepping away and the going for a walk and the throwing the rosin bag and the looking in for a sign for 12 minutes. I, I think this is going to be positive. I love it. Look, put it this way, Scott. If you're a purist of any sport, the people that are making the rules for your sport, the ones that are taking it into the next generation, they don't care about you because you're always going to watch, right? Regardless. They need to... Baseball is a dying sport in North America. Not only with the people that are watching it, but the people are playing it. So they need to do things to attract not only the the next up-and-coming players, but the people that are going to watch the sport for the next 50 years. And like it or not, baseball is seen as a slow, drab sport. Very exciting, especially in the playoff time, right? And a lot of fun to grab a hot dog and a beer or beverage and go to this ballpark and watch a game. But at the end of the day, the TV product is what is the most important. And four hours people aren't interested in. I'm seeing these 
apparently, I think it was three hours last year, the average of a Grapefruit League game was three hours and two minutes here. Hold me to a minute or two. And we're seeing games right now that are, on the average, about 235. The Blue Jays have already played two games this week that were under two hours and 15 minutes. This is wonderful. So if the pitch clock has something to do with it, I think it's a great thing. What was one of the things, I, if you watch a New York Mets game, uh, or I don't go with Mets, if you, want, if you go a little bit further back and watch a Roy Halladay game, this was the norm. The guy gets the ball, looks at the sign, and throws the ball, and his games were done in two hours and 35 minutes. He, games never went. As long as he was on, on, on the money and was going seven innings, games were clocked in at that time. I got time for baseball, you know, on a leisurely, not on a business standpoint, but on a leisurely standpoint. These are fun. They're great. And the newer generation, I mean, who are we fooling here? Attention span. You've got to do things to speed up the game. And I think it's working. Well, and the one thing you said that I I think is really interesting, because you talk about being a traditionalist. I, you know, if you go back 30 years, maybe 40 years, I don't know, Games were not like this. It wasn't where guys stepped out of the box and walked around 30, 40 years ago. This is a more recent thing. So the idea of hurrying the game up a little bit, certainly the clock is new. The clock is non-traditional. But the idea of these long delays between pitches, that's not the way baseball used to be. So you can go back to a faster game and it actually is more traditional than what we've been seeing for the last little while. You're probably right. But that's but that's the way the game. But that's the way those pitchers were back then. Watch, go to YouTube. Any for, for any of our new new listeners, go to YouTube and just check it out. The guys looked in there. And Nolan Ryan's. They go on and on about the guys that just took the ball and threw. And now another thing too to, to consider is that because they're. I mean, I don't know. Did the Blue Jays even have a complete game last year? Nope. Right? I don't Wasn't think so. A year? I think there was the year Ferguson Jenkins, the, the, the Hall of Famer, the Canadian Hall of Famer, maybe had 25, 26 complete games. No doubt. No doubt. My one concern about this, and I, and I say this legitimately, and I, and I don't know if this is going to arise. We've seen once already this spring, uh, and it could just be spring training. We've seen once already this spring, at least, a player take a fastball in the face. Um, right. And my, my only concern is, okay, the temperature now is mid-July. It's 1,000 degrees outside. Mm-hmm. You're making the pitchers throw the ball more quickly so they are not drying their hand or whatever else. My only concern is do we see more guys plunked because there's less control because you're hurrying up? That's my only issue with this. I'm sure they'll study this if it goes along because, you know, you don't need that. You don't need yeah. that stuff, nah. but that would be my, the other thing uh, is I'm going to look at, um, oh, what's his name? Who's the, the Blue Jays, uh, opening day pitcher. Um, the big guy, um, Ooh, Manoa, Alex, Ma- Manoa. Alex Manoa. Thank you. Yeah. I was drawing a blank on Alex Manoa. I wonder about a guy like Alex Manoa because that guy, I saw a video of him today walking into the clubhouse, very genial guy, happy guy, but he's walking with his, just his undershirt on. He's a big dude. 
He is uh-huh. a big dude. And you, and one of the things this is going to change is this is going to make pitching a little more of a cardio exercise than it ever has been before. And I do wonder with some of these guys, what's going to happen as the innings go on on a hot summer day? Nah. But that's something the team's going to have to work out. The nah. team's going to have uh, to get... Let me tell you, Scott, quickly, why, why I'm not worried about that. You go back and watch him, I believe Vanderbilt, I think is where he went, right? In college ball. Those guys did exactly what we're talking about. They took the ball. Those games are quick too. Yeah, but it's he wasn't quick. the same size he is now. That's no, the only thing. He's going to have to. He's going to have to pull a, a Vladdy Guerrero and drop about twenty pounds, and then he'll be just well, fine. Well, maybe so. So what? You're making twenty whatever million dollars getting shape, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, so, so, I agree. You you're not starting quarterback in the NFL, but you're still doing okay, <laughs> right? You you got people and trainers to help you out. Hundred percent conditioning. Hundred percent. Right? Yep. No, absolutely. It's uh, it'll be interesting. It will be interesting. But I I, my, I, I have it. I have turned on this one. I was very doubtful about this because I do. I do like the general idea that baseball doesn't have a clock, but I, my, I've turned on this one a little bit and it's, you know what, it's, it's not so much the clock thing, it's the idea that all the guys are not doing all the stupid stuff that's unnecessary, all the wasting you know, even, time. Even quickly, I don't know if it has anything to do with the bigger bases, they're saying stealing bases is up as well too. That will, that'll change, I think. Yeah, that'll change. That, that's partly as a result right now of this pitch clock and the having to get a pitch thrown. So once you get that clock down, a guy is good. A guy knows you can't go and pick him off. So he starts edging off the base. We'll see that. You know what? In every sport, we've seen this in every sport, a new rule, coaches will eventually figure out how to defend it. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Anyway, listen, we got to run. Uh, Bubba O'Neill. Always appreciate it, my friend. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, bud. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.